You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Stuart McFarlane is quite simply one of my all-time favourite artists. Born in Adelaide in the 50s, he entered the South Australian School of Art at the tender age of 16. At 21, he travelled to New York to study at the School of Visual Arts. And since then, alongside a music career, he has held over 50 solo exhibitions in major galleries around the world, establishing himself as the master of Australian contemporary narrative painting. So, Stuart, welcome to The Five of My Life. Well, you've got me all the way to Sydney, Nigel. It's amazing. I haven't been to Sydney for years. And you've come specially. You, are, you bloody angel. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way to Tasmania. So it's, it is a stopover. So right. um, it, it worked out very well. So. so I've got a bit of a confession. It is I feel a little bit like a Rolling Stones groupie who's having dinner with Mick Jagger. Because I, sodding, adore your work. I, I just incredible. adore it. So to have you on the show, for me, yeah, is a you. massive thrill. And I'm worried I am going to fuck up the interview because I just, um, I'm in awe. But so I'll try and stick to the format. <laughs> uh, and what we do is we always start with the film on Five of My Life. And mm-hmm. you have chosen uh, the film adaptation of the musical, which was also an adaptation of the opera, the 1875 opera Carmen. It's the 1955 uh, film, all black cast, Carmen Jones. Tell us your story on Five My Life about that. My, my dad took me to see Carmen Jones when I was maybe seven or eight just by myself. And there were three kids in the family. And I just remember it was just me and him. And I remember the impact of that film. And it must have been uh, in the early 60s, perhaps, even though the film was released in 54, somehow I was at the movies in Adelaide, and there I was watching it with Dad, and I was kind of, I was blown away. Uh, just the the impact was 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 huge on me, and um, you know, of course, I didn't know anything about you know all black or white didn't didn't mean anything to me, but it was incredibly powerful, and I was very very seduced by Dorothy uh, Dandridge. I oh. just she was just you know like a, as a, a boy who was like only about eight, maybe it was ten, I don't know, but I was just completely. Um, you know, hypnotized by her and you know, she was kind of good and evil at the same time to to the poor um uh, to the poor leading guy um and uh that's ha- harry Belafonte. Belafonte, Belafonte yeah. yeah and uh, so yeah she just completely uh, just got into my brain and it's so much so that it kind of affected me years later when i moved to new york my first wife was um a local uh, a woman who was a black woman in New York, and I just kind of like fell, you know, for some sort of like Dorothy Dandridge lookalike. And did, like, did you confess that the reason, sweetheart, no, why I'm taking it, you for a date? Not really. It just kind of like it was just in me, you know, just uh, there was something in me which um, I just kind of 
fell, you know. So, and, and would you mind uh, telling me a bit more about the first wife? If that, if, if I, I'm assuming uh, that she is uh, no longer the it, wife, but it was a short marriage. It was I got married when I was 24, uh, Joanne, and we met at art school. Uh, in uh, I was studying in um, the School of Visual Arts on 23rd Street, in New York City, and she was just on the same you know, level as me in the same studio space, and I just kept looking at her all the time, wanting to talk to her, but she was very uh, unapproachable. Un, un, um, uh, but I finally started joining the classes that she was in. So she did these weird classes like opera studies and things like that. So I'd sit next to her and, and I finally got to talk to her. And it, it took quite a while. And we, once we got, became involved, um, things happened quite quickly. And, but it was never right from the start. We were always kind of like a bit sort of edgy with each other. And, and I was about to break up with her. And then she said, well, if you break up with me, I'll never talk to you again, but if you stay with me, we'll get married in three days' time once we can get, see a judge. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so this, 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 she, she's, uh, she, she's all on red, all on black, like That's I right. do at the casino. Again, no, right. no point messing around. No, there was no like, you know, listen, let's try for another six months or a year. It was just like, so I just said, like, what the hell, you know. Yeah. Um, I was 24, you know, I got married and it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. so, so, so you are malleable. So she, she played the big card. Yeah. You you went okie dokie and and then what from woke up the next morning and that was a disaster or did it, did you have a month of bliss or oh look we we lasted we limped along for three years um, uh, but you know like when it got bad it got really really bad um, because you know just our world you know like the way we dealt with the world our backgrounds were so different it was so di- you know, difficult to to meld it together and just you know make it cohesive. Um, so our arguments were huge, and uh, I just you know got too much. I just had to leave. And, and any kids from that marriage? No, there were no kids. Yeah. And, and and still in touch, or or that's that's uh, a different life. We were in touch, like occasionally, about every ten years, uh, right. there, there might be an email or something. But uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and on the, um, Dorothy, I, I have to say, I mean, I didn't see it until I was um, fifty-nine. Uh, in in your honour, but I, I just thought she was electric on she the screen, was, just yep. absolutely electric. But yep. a really sad life. Yes, just yes. a really really sad life. And and, and it, it makes me want to ask you, uh, going straight in, uh, heroin. Um, uh, I've read. Uh, I'm just going to say all your stuff. I'm sure there's lots of your stuff I haven't read, but I've read <laughs> lots of your stuff. Wow. Would you mind talking a little bit about um, uh, heroin? You see, it, I mean, I've only been in Australia for 21 years, but apparently yeah. it, it sort of like wildfire went across Australia. Oh, oh, in, in the 70s, when, when I was, you know, just starting to get independent, uh, you know, as a young adult, uh, it seemed to be everywhere in Australia. And uh, I was always aware of it and always scared of it. Um, I, probably because of another film as well, The Man with the Golden Arm by Frank Sinatra. So there was a couple of warning films I saw when I was a kid uh, which scared the hell out of me about alcoholism, Mm. (laughs) heroin, things like that. So um, I saw a lot of it and I have been impacted by it. My first girlfriend got addicted to heroin when she was... Is that Marianne? Marianne, that's right. Uh, And I've never known if she lived or died. Um, uh, I left, you know, because I left for America when I was uh, uh, 21. But, and when I got to America, heroin was everywhere in New York City. Um, you know, like I, I got into the music scene. Most of the bands were, you know, like addicted to it. They, they pretended they were heroes, you know, uh, and, and, you know, most of them are dead now. So 
Uh, I've, I've, heroin was just everywhere. It seems to have like turned now into other weird, horrible drugs, you know, ice, fentanyl, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but uh, heroin used to be huge. And, and you, you dodged that bullet. I, I was that? terrified. Oh, I, oh, you know, like I, one, I hate needles. <laughs> Absolutely. I was never going to be seen sticking needles yeah. into me. But occasionally uh, in, in New York, it was, it was so rife that, uh, you know, like I, there was marijuana everywhere in New York in the 70s. And occasionally you get mixed into joints and things like that. So, so uh, there's a wonderful uh, English comedian, Daniel Kitson. And he talks about uh, sort of the upsides of him being a scaredy cat, which absolutely is me, where my cowardice around drugs saved me until I was mature enough to then now just not want them because it's a bloody stupid idea. But when when I was a young man, uh, uh, I terrified I, I wouldn't no thank you I don't want to stick yes. that needle in my arm yes. um, but but if I was braver I bloody well would have it was it wasn't moral superiority it, it, it was I I'm terrified whereas now not moral superiority it would be a conscious choice thank you I don't need to be well, doing I don't that. want to be slumping down in the yeah. streets you know like <laughs> well listen I'm, I'm glad you resisted that yeah. we're moving to uh the second choice and I I'm, can't wait to uh, hear what your story and rationale behind this choice is because I, for what it's worth, I studied theology for eight years and you have chosen the first guest so far on Five My Life. Someone has chosen a Bible, a copy that their twin brother gave them, mm-hmm. but no one has chosen the Bible. Right. So could you first of all describe, because there are lots of them, mate, there are lots of different versions, yeah. uh, describe the Bible in, in your terms, what you mean by it, and then tell us your story. Um, well, you know, there, there have been sort of various formats of the Bible, but I guess the King James King Bible is, is probably, uh, you know, the, the, the most uh, uh, reliable. But putting that aside, uh, when people choose other books, it's, it's kind of like um, you're picking something of a lower level when there's a foundational book, which usually influences all the other books. And uh, from the time of like Shakespeare, for example, where he has uh, related to the Bible about 1,300 times in his plays, um, and that's what—that's the first generation. Uh, he was—he was from born in 1564, I think. And from that generation, the Bible was pretty much available to everybody. And most people went to church. They were sometimes mandated to go to church, so they all knew theology. So they would actually use these biblical stories and then and then refer to them and bounce off them because they're so um, seminal. These stories are just like they—they're they're about stories about our families, about uh, how flawed we are. Um, if people ever think we come from a, dis- you know, you come personally from a dysfunctional family, I mean, you just have to look to the families in the Bible, Cain and, starting with Cain and Abel, how two brothers hated each other. Yeah. Uh, and then just go on from there. And, 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 and families are just completely messed up. So it's not a book about perfect people. It's about imperfect people with incredible stories. And so... Uh, uh, say Moby Dick is, it refers to the Bible, uh, um, uh, the story about um, the whale. Uh, basically, is 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 referring to something in Job in Job forty one, uh, um, where it is this sort of a monster which you're trying to tame with a fish hook, and even the first line in Moby Dick is "Call me Ishmael," which is Abraham's first son. And then if you look to, uh, to other really important books, Grapes of Wrath, for example, yep. uh, from Revelation 14, 19, uh, um, the Grapes of Wrath, the title comes from uh, this quote, the angel swung his sickle on earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. 
Um, so, and Bob Dylan's, most of Bob Dylan's work, the greatest songwriter of the modern age, uh, he constantly looks to the Bible for, for characters, for stories, you know, um, all along the Watchtower, if you look at that, it's probably from the Book of Revelations. So, you know, all these great writers, why would you look to some sort of minor writer when you have a foundational book which was in everybody's house and respected and people learnt language from it, they learnt how to write stories? Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's been pushed aside in, 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 in modern times and, and sort of like laughed at, but um, it's, it's just a foundational book. It's, um, um, wow, amazing that you've, you've got all those um, source references, chapter and verse as well. So uh, do you read it regularly? And would you mind talking about your own faith and religious journey? Okay, so the Bible, uh, I've probably read through it about three times properly um, from start to finish, but... Um, I'm nowhere near sort of understanding it, remembering it. It is so um, uh, it's changeable, complex, depending on what you're going through in life, uh, how you're feeling. Um, and sometimes it's just not uh, easy to read and, 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 and it, it's kind of blocked. You know, you, you get blocked from actually getting into it. It just seems so um, difficult sometimes. Uh, so I, it's, it's, always kind of, it's always ever new. I just keep coming back to it and then re-trying to get into it, relearning from it. Um, but for me, uh, you know, I went through 25 years of uh, New Age stuff. I, you know, I followed all sorts of gurus. I, I, I read you know, many other sort of religious texts and things, trying to get some answers for a really long time. And uh, it was in 1996 that I actually sort of like just dropped everything else and just, just you know, gave up, surrender basically, when I was in my early 40s and went back to church again and uh, realized, uh, you know, the... They're, they're, the way for me is, uh, you know, through through church, through Christ, and through the Bible. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I was just so mixed up for for most of my life. I'm still mixed up. But um, so, wow. And, and what uh, denomination would be the church that you go to? I don't, I don't buy into de- denominations. Right. I uh, because they can all be absolutely flawed, screwed up. Yeah. Um, it, to me, it's about the teaching. It's, it has to be biblical. I have to have a very good uh, pastor or preacher. And uh, those two things are, are the first things I look for. If now, if, they, if they're not in place, I don't go. So, and, and uh, do you do you attend uh, weekly or monthly or? I, I go every week. Yeah. yeah. If wow. I don't go, I don't. I feel you know I, something's incomplete. Yeah. Wow. So, so I uh, have been on a um, in a journey as as you know cliche self help journey for for all my life, and ended up going to the Quakers because mm-hmm. I, I, I would like to have your faith, but I can't. I can't. I can't pretend I believe things that I don't believe. Yeah. That makes sense. But I wish yeah, I did yeah. believe them, but I don't. But, yeah. I, but I, I'd like to access all the other good stuff. Yes, yes. Right? And, and, and the Quakers, I mean, and apologies to any Quaker who's listening, is they are the lowest church you can find in terms of you, you have to pretend that you believe in less. Yes. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, yes. And, and, and the wonderful thing they've got, which is there's a little bit of God in everyone. And I add in an O. So it's a little bit of good in everyone. Right. So I go in. <laughs> so I don't feel like I'm that I'm being disrespectful because I'm pretending I believe stuff that I don't. If I went to a high, you know, a high church Catholic service or something. Yes, yes, right? yes. But there have been times when I have driven home from a Quaker service, and and I imagine it could be any service where I just feel ah, like a better man, like I, I'm gonna. You know, I, I'm less self-focused. Yeah. And and we we dragged the kids to uh, a church service at Christmas. 
which is very unusual for us. We think, you know, yeah, well, hold on, it's Christmas for Christ's sake. It shouldn't just be, you know, presents and whatever. Uh, and the same thing happened. So I just, it would be great if there was a version that, you know, could unite everybody where you're, where you get together and you're not stabbing each other or hating each other. Mm. You're, you're being eyes to lift your eyes to heaven and be slightly kinder is my, you know, wet version of it. It's, it sounds good. I mean, that's why, to me, the Bible is the guidebook, you see, and, and churches, are, are, they're the next step, but, you know, they're, they're not everything. So referring, referring back to that, if you have something in, in life that's a problem or, um, you know, confusing, uh, then, you know, look at the Bible. And a lot of people, of course, have trouble with the Old Testament because it's so severe, but then uh, the New Testament and Christ's teachings are what, you know, yeah, Christians follow. So, so the, the, the Old Testament, hilarious, the, the, the chapters which are, you know, Dave begat, Sue begat, you know, yes, James yes. begat Charles. Yeah. You go, yeah, there, there are some hard, hard chapters it's, it's to hard, get through. It's hard, it's hard to consume, I agree. It's, you know, I've struggled with, with that. Well, look, mate, thank you. I, I, there's been 130 guests now, and I just love the the different way people approach the choices and how it uh, gives an insight into the people. Because I, I, I think you are a very, very, very special talent and man, and your art is is just sensational. It's thought provoking. It's surprising. It's joyous. It's it's always fresh, and I wouldn't have known ever what you've just told me. And it's a, just a delight to find out the man behind the the the, the genius works. I, I just just quickly on that. I I just somebody sent me a, a little quote from Nick Cave recently, and he, he's always a. a a little surprise. So in a very recent interview, he said, um, today, if you want to be a rebel, you have to go to church and you have to be conservative. And that's a quote from him in the past couple of weeks. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you know the, the, the band, The Water Boys? Yes. Just fantastic. One of their best songs, uh, I think, ever, but, you know, better than The Hole of the Moon, better than, you know, Fisherman, whatever else, is Thou Who Art in the Sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you go, that. well, that's right. And it gets, so it's even... There are some things that influence people then they don't even know they're being influenced. Right. But also there are people like Nick Cave, I wouldn't have realized he'd said that, where you go, it's surprising yeah. who who has got a, a you know, has got a connection to it. Yeah. And it's and it's easy to mock religion and I don't think people should. And I you know, I think everyone should be able to believe what they believe. But yeah. uh, um, it's nothing shameful. It seems the only the only people you're allowed to take the piss out of in popular culture these days, comedians or whatever else, is Christians. Mm-hmm. We can all have a laugh and take the piss and you go, well, I, I just calm your farm a bit and yeah. have a little bit more respect because you don't do that to certain other religions. Absolutely right. Yeah. Your third choice on Five of My Life is the first track on the debut album of Denise Williams. She was a backup singer for Stevie Wonder, sung wonderfully on Songs in the Key of Life, one of my favourite albums. Explain to us why you've chosen It's Important to Me, the 1976 track. I uh, became aware of it in 1977 when I was married to my first wife, and it reminds me very much of New York, and the whole album 
is called This Is Nisi, Denise Williams, and it was produced by Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire, which is, you know, like the most favorite band from the 70s. And uh, they, just, they just make superb sounds, superb music, and they backed up Denise uh, Williams on this first album. And I just remember putting it on, and I, it would just soak over me every song. And it was when I first was in love with my first wife and living in a, in a loft in soho in new york and during the summer and uh just it was just so beautiful um and I, to this day i just when i, I just want when i want a, a beautiful lift i put the album back on again so and are you a vinyl man uh, yeah i got thousands of vinyl oh i think we might be coming to talk about that but um <laughs> so given we're on songs um you're a bit of a rock star yourself mate don't be shy squawk was it Squawk or Squaw? Uh, Squaw was my first band in Adelaide, yeah. And Slim Pickings? Slim Pickings in Adelaide. And Narcissus was another band in Adelaide, yeah. And, and, and didn't you have brushes with uh, David Byrne and Jimmy Barnes, or am I making all this up? I, I I had those first bands in Adelaide, then I moved to Sydney. I had a, a, a little band here for a few months in 75. We actually got on one of the first episodes of Countdown. <laughs> right. Um, with, with a recording sort of competition, we came third in that. <laughs> um, so was, we were on TV. That was fantastic. Uh, then I moved to New York City and uh, met a, a guy um, at art school who was a really good musician, and we became very good friends, formed a band, recorded an album that got released in France, and uh, um, played around Manhattan quite a lot. Actually, yeah, bumped shoulders with David Byrne, uh, played on stage with Johnny Thunders. You met, just met all all of that sort of like era of New York of punk and, and all that. And you were like 23, living the dream. You well, were. I was actually by that point, I was about 26, 27. Right. Uh, so I actually felt like a bit of an old man at that point, like you know, being in a rock band. Was, and I was thinking, mm, well, you know, I'm getting close to 30. What will happen then? Um, I better make it quick. I was thinking, you know. So, and, and were you still painting at the same time? Yeah, no. See, like, it, yes. It, from, I found it hard. I was doing music so seriously that I just dropped painting for two years and just right. did music. But it was getting. I was getting quite ahead in music, and and and. Uh, but at the same time, all of that stuff that drives people insane was starting to drive me insane. Um, uh, the, you know, things were moving too fast. Things were. Um, too accessible, it was too decadent. I was actually starting to feel very, very depressed. Right. And gosh, and then was there a moment that made you give it away? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, in my life, I kind of like, I'm a little bit too sensitive to things. So I was noticing a lot of things that are happening around the same time. So our band had a uh, TV appearance and somehow there was a strike at the TV studio that night. We had a gig and, and the gig was shut down for some reason. There were about three or four things all happening around the same time. And I also my personal life was a mess, uh, and I just thought, no, I'm just going to take a break. And I came back to Australia for a few weeks, took a break. Then the band just folded, and I had a real hard time getting it back together. So right, okay. Well, I think we might be segueing into. Uh, gosh, I, I can't wait to hear you talk about this. Is your fourth choice? Uh, is your uh, favourite place? And I'm very delighted that you've chosen your studio. Now, in researching you, mm -hmm. I have seen about nine of your different studios throughout your career. So uh, any particular one, your current one, uh, explain it, describe it, and then tell us the story. Okay. Um, I say a studio because, you know, if I picked a city, I, you know, I thought about that. And, you know, what some, someone could say New York or Paris. But to me, the world keeps changing so much that, that places change. And what used to be good for a certain period of your life doesn't suit later on. Like for me, I used to love New York City. But today, I don't like it. 
Um, it's, it's you know partly too sanitised. It's all too groupthink. Um, so I just don't like it. I feel uncomfortable there. Whereas when I went there in the seventies, uh, it was so edgy and so dangerous. You know, wasn't it was it? it was incredibly dangerous. And um, but I just threw myself into it, and that made it more exciting. So. So and I wouldn't say any other city either, or you know I wouldn't say Sydney or you know Paris or anything. So where I feel best, my best favorite place is when I make a beautiful studio and I put. I always have a beautiful sound system, and there's you know nothing makes me happier than putting on some great music and just starting a, a painting that I'm excited about, and I get drawn back into it and I have to keep finishing it. So that's my happy place. So I've had umpteen studios. I you know I couldn't even count them. Um, uh, the one I've had, the one I'm currently in, uh, took me almost, uh, you know, close to a year to get together, and um, it's a beautiful studio. And unfortunately, I might not be there for you know for that much longer. And I'll have to create a new studio. So, tell us a little bit about your process, because I, I have, uh, you know, I, I've just eaten up everything I can find about you and, and there's videos of you playing the guitar, your writing but also there's quite a lot of you in the in the studio and, and the exhibition that I just adored was one of your drawings so I, I accessed you through your paintings there, there are certain occasions in my life I am in no, I don't know anything about art, I just like it uh, so I, I remember seeing a Jeffrey Smart exhibition and being just completely overwhelmed like I've been punched in the face I remember uh, seeing Bronzino's work for the first time and think holy crap how did I not know that and that's what I thought when I saw your work I, I just, it, this bloke is, is on fire it's amazing it's initially grabs me it's got intrigue in it, there's always stacks of nudity which we need to talk about uh, and then the, the, the drawing uh, exhibition was an insight into how you created the paintings themselves. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, a, a bit like bloody Rolf Harris, or and you can't mention him anymore, but you know, those guys that, that do paintings you know, in one go. Yes. Yeah, I, I sort of imagine, oh, he just, how, what a genius. He just creates that, that thing of beauty. Yes. And then it's not usually that simple. It took more mm-hmm. than an hour of you painting it. So would you mind talking a little bit about how you create your gorgeous pieces of art? Um, thanks for that question. Um, my, my process is kind of like a, it took a while to get together. When I first went to art school, um, I've always been a realist. I've always loved uh, storytelling. I, you know, one of my first paintings, when I first started painting in, you know, when I was about 13, was of a, um, a demonstration, a street demonstration, where people were pushing a car over and rioting in a street. So th- there's stories coming from, it's usually you know, to do with social issues, but you know, I'm not preaching about anything. I'm just observing sort of often the decay of society and, and relationships. And uh, so, but the way I've, I had to start learning how to do it was uh, um, I, I had various different people guide me through it, various different art, artists. And one of the earlier ones who influenced me quite a lot was a guy named David Dowitz, an Adelaide uh, artist who I used to watch him draw in life drawing classes at, at, at art school. And uh, the, the way he simply broke down a figure, the way he, he, he um, constructed a painting after that, uh, th- that was really uh, important to me. Then I moved to New York and I had some very good figure. You could just choose your teachers in New York. They, you, know, you didn't just do a painting class. You, you had like 10 different teachers to choose. You know? So I chose um, figurative painters who I liked, whose work I saw in exhibitions in, in, in the Manhattan 
and uh, got close to, to, to them and, and learned to, to Chuck to, Close and Alex Katz and people. Yeah, Alex Katz, Chuck wow. Close. My, my, my main teacher at art school was a guy named John Button, who's now dead. But then John got me into the studios of Chuck Close and Alex Katz. So I started working in Alex Katz's studio and watching him, his process. So for a while, I copied that for about two or three years. My paintings got very simplified. I was trying to, you know, there's no way to really, you know, copy cats. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, so I had to switch after that and, and create my own style. And that happened in about 84, where I would draw from the from the figure that I wanted to, to you know, I'd, I'd do a, a drawing, then I'd blow that drawing up, then i get the, the person back into the studio and continue painting from them three or four times until I got, you know, um, enough information. I just, uh, it's incredible hearing how it works behind the scenes. And there's something that you uh, said in a previous interview. Is There was a stage in your life when you were gridding, that's probably the wrong word, but mm-hmm. you, you, yeah. it's like, in my words, like tracing from photographs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you can make wonderful, wonderful art like that. Yep. And then you went through an amazing uh, phase where you think, hold on, that's sort of like cheating. I, can I do it from life? That's right. And mate, y- y- the answer is yes, you can. <laughs> but, but you had to prove that to yourself. I did, I did. I did. Even before I went to art school, um, I was drawing uh, all the time. I, you know, I have drawings of uh, I did of my family, uh, which were, you know, when I look back on them now, they're quite realistic. They're well done. Um, and that's I even presented those when I first went to art school when I was 16 and I got a scholarship. So I could do that. I, um, it, it was possible. But to put it all together, it, it took until I got to New York to actually um, put it together. So I saw the incredible competition in in Manhattan that I had to somehow throw myself in amongst and so I just kept trying to step myself up and I'd just you know paint from life as precisely as possible so there was a period when I did very realistic paintings but they were all just done from life and then I kind of like switched when I got back to Australia to try and find my own style and so in 84 when I went to the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne um, I think that's the, when I first got the style that people recognise now as my style. And, and I was trying to describe it to people because I, I eulogise about you to, to everybody. Uh, if I and, and please don't be offended because, gosh, I don't really uh, – I'm not an art uh, expert. But Hopper, is, is Hopper like yeah, a – Hopper, infa- so he's, he's probably uh, – he's, he's like, you know, if you talk about – the, the seminal book as a Bible, Hopper will be the seminal artist. Okay, for me. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, so, so and, and maybe Smart. I don't know. Hopper, uh, Smart. You. No, not so much Jeffrey Smart. I really respect Jeffrey Smart, and he really inspired me. But I don't look to him, right? Um, like I look to Hopper. There's something about Hopper's way of seeing contemporary society, the edginess yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, when I look at Jeffrey Smart, I, I see a, a formula played out. You know, a little bit too obviously. It's sure. always the dark skies, the little figures. Um, and the, you know the, the the highways and things like that, which is great. They're very very powerful. But Hopper has more. He yep. he, he he covers a, a bigger expanse. Night paintings, day paintings, interior paintings, uh, figures, no figures. Um, so it's less formulaic. Talk to me about nudes. I'm not complaining. Yeah, yeah. I'm not complaining. But there are lots yeah. of naked women in your work. Yes. Uh, and why? As I, I have you know various things that I you know some artists just repeat themselves pretty much over and over again and get and get away with it and it's fine you know they might just do all paintings of the ocean they might just do all paintings of you know some sort of abstract painting that looks similar over and over again um i get bored easily uh, so i have to have a, a range of topics that inspire me right so 
um, if I'm going to paint landscapes, I can't just go out to you know the outskirts of a city and just paint like a little average hill painting. I have to be blown away by the Flinders Ranges with uh, afternoon light. It has to, you know, I have to because it takes a lot of effort to work. So same with um, painting the figure. I, you know, I was, I was doing life drawings from art school, and and I love it. And it's a great exercise, but I have to be inspired by what I paint. So uh, I prefer to paint, you know, a beautiful woman. Um, that inspires me, and the shape and, and, and the uh, you know the the um, personality is important. You know the, the personality in the studio, the the face, uh, or, um, you know the figure. All of that is so important. I just it, you know if as an art school student you'll be presented with all sorts of uh, models. There'll just be some old man. You know there'll be you know a fat old lady and stuff like that. But I don't find you know a lot of that very inspiring. I do. I love beauty, so um, I love to paint a beautiful woman. I, I can't advise people more strongly to go out and check out your art. But one of the things, I mean, there's so many things. But one of the things you do that I think is astonishing is when I look at one of your paintings that has a nude in it. Mm-hmm. It isn't just a nude. There is a story that has been hinted at. So it is a beautiful nude in, in classical terms. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, all the lines and the proportions and everything else are white and it's stunning and it's whatever. But but there's a there's like a story. You, you know, a, a, her ankle will have a telephone wrapped around it or there'll be an open <laughs> fridge and a bloke with, with a syringe. Or they, you think, what? On, so on second, you, you get two bites at the cherry. You think, that's amazing. But hold on, who's that bloke <laughs> on the bicycle through the window or whatever it is? So, so it's just, a, just very rewarding. It's, well... For me, I'm, I'm trying to give myself something to, um, uh, to, to keep me going in the painting, a story that keeps me going, keeps me wondering. So I put, you know, if you put two different elements together, um, it, it brings the story somewhere else and it usually doesn't complete it. So it's always just hanging. The story will be hanging. And I like that. So Now, I have to ask because I've got a few mates. Uh, I've got one who's a sculptor and, and, and a couple of friends who, who paint and do music. Is uh, financially, is, is it a bittersweet symphony of of domestic trudgery and poverty or does it pay like a bastard my my first teacher always said don't be an artist and i, I used to think oh he's just joking uh, you know he's, he's he's sort of daring me to be an artist and but he was right it was um it's extremely difficult although it's taken me all over the world and uh, i've had residencies you know in uh, italy and uh, in Greece, Mexico and, and Mexico and, and, and you know around America and things like that but you know when they run out you suddenly you're you're on your bum again you know so um, then you've got to restart up you've got to you know, somehow try and find buyers clients supporters uh, and it, so it's a real big you know constant period of up and down up and down and uh, very few artists in Australia just get past that level where they're comfortable all the time um, that's a tiny percent uh, and I've not quite, you know, managed to uh, crawl up to that uh, height yet. Yeah, so it, it never ends. But I suppose it, it sorts out those people who are uh, authentically, passionately motivated because you wouldn't bloody do it if you wanted an easy life. No, but I, I've also learned that, um, I, you know, I can survive. And, and, and when things get hard, something comes through, it always comes through. It really does. And when I was about 33, I used to live in Sydney and I used to be working uh, – in the cross area in a restaurant and, and uh, you know, in, in, as a kitchen hand and things like that. And I remember I said, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm not going to keep doing this the rest of my life. I'm not going to do anything but paint or teach if I get hired at an institution or teach. But that's it. And, you know, I'll just die if I, you know, if I don't survive, you know. So, and from that point on, that's what happened. 
and 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 the world then clicks into you know I, I love I love the notion of intentional purpose. Yeah. When, when you actually, I mean, I don't know. I, I gave up drink twenty years ago, but I spent lots of time trying to give up before. Right. But wanting the world to sort of organise itself to help me. Yep. And you go, nah, 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 nah. You decide exactly how you've just expressed. Mm-hmm. I am going to do X. Yeah. Come rain or shine, and yep. then the world surprisingly does actually it's forced it's forced to sort of uh, yeah. work around you so. i'm going to be an artist whether you like it or not and that's yeah, right. okay we actually really like it yeah. um your fifth and final choice uh on five and life it's always the possession uh, and you have chosen record albums it's, it's it's that was not an easy question because uh because well, number one i move so much in my life and that you know i, I have very few possessions that you know, like if they all disappear, I've, I've lived for years just, you know, on the road with everything in a storage container, you know. Um, so it's not that important. If they all disappear, it doesn't matter. But I, you know, they give me great pleasure. You know, record albums, they something I can afford. It's something that if I find the right op shop and there's a stack of records there, I, I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm looking at. And uh, it's, it's one of those big relief and pleasurable things for me. And, and, uh, but, you know, it gets harder and harder because so many people have gotten on to it. But, yeah, it's for years. I started recollecting records in about uh, 2002, something like that. And now I would have like several thousand, I don't know, four or five, I don't know, a thousand records. So. And, and, and do you display them or are they? I've got racks. I, they look like a record store rack, you know. So. And, and are you an alphabetical nerd or, no, or no, genre nerd or just any type? More, yeah, I, I like to put them in genres. So, like, you know, I like, I particularly like collecting Australian records in the six, 60s, 70s, Australian, you know, artists, rock artists, you know. And, and there's an amazing thing that I, I mean, God, I sound like a, total boomer now but is it it's a shame for my kids that they aren't going to be exposed to cover art mm-hmm. I, I remember being a little 12 year old and it would blow your mind standing in a record shop flipping through yep. the, the 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 lps yeah and 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 read i mean like books reading them mm-hmm. and 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 the, you know the concept albums you'd open them and there might be like short stories inside That's and ah right. oh, just fantastic it, yeah it was, it was so exciting i'm mean, so simple and so exciting as well so couple of questions for you to uh, wrap up and thank you again mate for, for you, c- traveling to be here and share this with you um, one what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you oh that's a what a question that is oh that is a, a really hard question I'd, I'd have to think about that. I mean people have done a lot of kind things for me I, you know, one of the I guess the, one of the kindest things was um, I I I got a residency in New Mexico back in 1987, um, and I applied for it for 10 years to get it, right? So when I finally got it, um, I, I sort of like gelled so much with the guy that was actually the patron that he gave me two more residencies over the coming uh, 20 years, uh, completely supporting me, buying my paintings, um, and he was just such a lovely guy. His name is Donald Anderson, and uh, he really uh, gave me a huge boost in my life. And is Donald still with us? Uh, Donald died at 101 years old about a year and a half or two years ago. I love hear, hearing people say nice things about other people behind their backs. So that's a lovely story. Uh, the last question is the traditional one, which is who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? I'd, like, I'd love to hear... Um, Michael Gray Griffith on Five of My Life. Uh, Michael is uh, absolutely a passionate, passionate person about uh, 
getting Australian stories. He has been going around Australia for almost two years getting um, stories from uh, marginalised people who have been marginalised by what's happened to Australia in the past couple of years. And his stories are absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, he's passionate about it. And somehow he's been supported. But initially there was no way that he saw any support. And... uh, um, yeah, so yeah, Michael Gray Griffith. D- does he write books or? He's, he was a playwright uh, before um, he couldn't be a playwright anymore. Uh, and then he just wanted to get other people's stories. And he's one of the best uh, people to draw stories out of people that I have been around, apart from yourself. Um, he, you know, he, he really facilitates people talking, doesn't get in their way, uh, and just draws out some, you know, really very strong stories out of them. So. Well, well, I'll give him a ring. Michael Gray Griffiths. Um, Stuart yeah. McFarlane, thank yes. you so much for sharing your five on five my life. Oh, look, I'm just blown away that you invited me, that you found me and that, uh, you know, you enjoy my work so much that really that lifts me up incredibly. And thank you, Nigel. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.